This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Liz Lunier. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. This week, we're bringing you a deep dive into automation within the workforce. We'll be exploring the strategies to upskill your workforce to help them make better decisions by using the tools of the future. We'll also look at how automation might actually have a role in protecting jobs rather than taking them away. Joining me on the show today, I have Michael. Hi, uh, my name is Michael. I'm the founder and CEO of Fathom. And returning to the show, Claudia. Hi, my name is Claudia. I am responsible for Capgemini Invent Workforce Organization. First up, explain to us what the impact of automation has been on the workforce in general during the past 50 years. I think what we can see is, especially in the last year, that technology influences work and the way we do work. And it influences specific tasks and how we execute them. And I think since, I don't know, the 1800s, it has helped us to be more productive and to free up time for more valuable tasks as humans. In essence, I think we can say technology has influenced how we work, how we live, and how we want to lead our lives in the future. It's interesting you choose the last 50 years. So I think mankind has been automating since the wheel. What's happened in the last 30, 40 years is that with the advent of computing as the key driver of automation, the speed of automation and the effect of automation have become much more pronounced. Many of us will remember back about 10 years or so when the media was full of stories about chessboards and Moore's Law and what has become known now as the exponential change in technology's impact on jobs and the effect of automation around the world was starting to see really ramp up. But when you said the last 50 years, really that goes back to the last industrial revolution. The different industrial revolutions have used different types of technology to power automation. So initially it was coal and steam, and then it was electrical, the second industrial revolution. The third industrial revolution is really about computing. And the fourth industrial revolution, where we are today, is about network computing, intelligence, and artificial intelligence particularly. So what we're seeing is not just a steady state progress of automation, we really start to see a kind of a ramp. And people talk about exponential change in tech as a fairly kind of general term, but really we are seeing very, very pronounced effects in technology. And it's easy to kind of pick on particular examples, but one of them that's quite new is the story of a company called UiPath. So UiPath is one of the world's robotic process automation companies. They use AI, a range of different types of AI actually, But they package all of that into a product and a platform around process automation. So in 2015, UiPath had 20 staff. Last month, they listed on the New York Stock Exchange on a valuation of 37 billion. And that's probably a pretty clear example there as to what's been happening, not so much the last 50, the last five years. We're really starting to see that ramp. These technologies are really starting to have an effect. And one of the big problems that that gives us all is this idea of future of work. This is not a future problem. This is a challenge facing everybody today. To even build on that, what I felt in the last year through the pandemic, this has even accelerated. So what we've seen in terms of speed and maybe also in terms of acceptance, I guess, that automation and technology have to play a role in how we work and how we live has even more so accelerated and need for technology to keep us safe and to make sure we're still able to work 
is a widely accepted notion. So I would assume the speed is even accelerating more than in the last four years or five years that you're talking about, Michael. We've been saying for the last year or so that COVID has been a slingshot to 2023. Fathom's got clients in 21 industries in 26 different countries. And if you go back to 2019, we were seeing many of those companies start experiments with new technologies. So they put robotic process automation into finance. They might put robots in their warehouses, start looking at autonomous vehicles in mines or manufacturing sites. Many of those companies have been experimenting with these technologies in 2019. When COVID came along, they really started scaling those technologies. So they really needed to no longer just trial the effects. They needed to keep their people safe, but they also needed to keep their companies going, keep their companies sustainable. So we've seen COVID do two things, really, as far as automation goes. Number one is drive demand for technology. And number two is use that technology to try and keep people safe, to augment them, not just to automate. So have you seen benefits for both companies in the workforce from an automation perspective because of COVID-19? Have there been any negative impacts as well? On the negative side, to start with that first, one of the things that I'm reading more and more about is loneliness. And I think loneliness is the kind of extreme example of people isolated to the extent that they're missing that human contact. The kind of less bad but still not great example is the impact on things like collaboration and information sharing, the impact on culture. From my own perspective, running a company that's growing very, very quickly means that I haven't met many of my colleagues. On the flip side, we hear a lot about liberation. We hear a lot about freedom. We hear a lot about choice. We hear a lot about people that are experiencing a new type of work. One of the big things that we realized, we did a big study on diversity and inclusion in the US. We just did it on the US market. One of the things that a lot of our clients were saying is that people who might not have had a voice in a meeting now do. So we have had more positive experiences of technology and and the way that tech has positively affected things. And then I think as well, this speeding up of technology has led to an augmentation of many, many people. So It's not an automation story, really, but the augmentation of people. And that's a good news story. It's not about mass job loss, about universal basic income, about what we're going to do with all these millions of people with nothing to do. It's all about how do we train people and give people the skills that they need to use these technologies to be augmented and to drive new levels of capacity and productivity. It's a much more nuanced story than the media have led us to believe. Well, you're talking about burnout. So how can automation help with burnout? Yeah, I think it's interesting what, for example, Microsoft already does in terms of adjustments to teams to help you manage the switch between private and work life. It also allows you to regulate when you receive messages and how you organize your day. So I think technology companies already on the way to help ease that stress. I do think it's not just a technology topic as such. It's a cultural and a leadership topic more so because the felt pressure to contribute and and to perform doesn't come from sitting in front of a computer. It's more an emotional topic. So we've talked about the impact of COVID on automation and the workforce, but have any specific sectors witnessed a heavy impact regarding automation? Anything in particular that comes to mind? Basically, every sector is doing something with emerging technology and automation. It just looks different and it's differently obvious. Any service-based major company, so banks, telecoms, retail and so on, they are all in spending a lot of money on process automation. So it could be programmed intelligence, it could be artificial intelligence. 
which is to say attended or unattended robots. But these are software robots that are embedded in processes to expedite, automate, facilitate information flow across an organization. At the other end of the scale, mining companies are all about autonomous vehicles. So I've been there in the mines and I've seen those first autonomous vehicles, 400 ton coal trucks driving around on their own. The characteristic though, that all companies, regardless of industry, have in common is that automation at the moment is almost exclusively on internal and fully controlled environments. There are very few companies right now that want to automate anything that's customer relationship. Customers are all important. Customers are a source of revenue or reputation. If you get it wrong, you don't get them back very easily. Yeah, and I think that's the big difference from a couple of years ago. We started some of the digital transformation work and with a piece of research with the MIT. And in the beginning, you could see big gaps of industries investing into technology and where, especially consumer products and so forth. But I absolutely agree that today there's no industry that doesn't look at automation and AI and how to make work more effective and how to reduce simple routine tasks through automation. One of the industries that we're seeing a lot happening is government. Government in many countries now are one of the most active sectors when it comes to using technology to augment, using technology to automate, but then to lift the customer experience they provide or lift the sophistication of what they're doing. The government is shot to the front much more so than it was just a couple of years ago. You're talking about how automation is coming to a lot of different places and you're talking about how you're augmenting a lot of jobs. What would you say that the biggest jobs that are at risk of going away or what jobs do you see evolving or being augmented the most when it comes to automation in the next few decades? Anything to do with routine processes, so any job involved in routine is a candidate for automation. That could be any type of clerical role, administrative role, basic research roles, any roles to do with kind of calculation, processing, reporting, compliance, any of these sorts of roles are just candidates for automation. You tend to point automation activities at high volume routine activities, but it doesn't follow that the automation of the task or the process leads to the automation of the job. And I think you mentioned it, Michael, it's two different things. The possibility that the technology allows us to do, and then the decision an organization is also taking on whether they are automating those tasks and what they will do with the people and how they will recombine the tasks that remain to positions or new jobs or different jobs or augmented jobs. So I think the conversation in, in the media is very frightening and creates a lot of anxiety with workers. but. We forget it's, it's a decision as well, how much you invest in technology, how much you want to really work on that bottom line, which is an organizational decision and then also needs to entail the people decision that you mentioned. Yeah, the values have changed in the last 18 months as a result of COVID. And that has changed the way that a lot of companies view their responsibility to their employees. And one of the things that we're seeing is a renewed emphasis on where do we reskill, where do we upskill, how do we transition people, and what are those jobs of the future so that we can make sure that people have a pathway to those future jobs. The CEO of Woolworths, which is Australia's largest employer, wrote a newspaper article in the national media here in February, the headline of which is No One Left Behind, My Vision for the Future of Work at Woolworths. On the same day, they announced a $50 million fund 
to spend on reskilling and upskilling all of their staff. But they're spending a lot of money on automation in the warehouses, in the stores, in the head office. So they're automating, but they're investing in learning and development. And to quote the CEO, so that no one's left behind. That's not a headline that I don't think we'd have seen two years ago. Let's talk a little bit about how we can shape the workforce for the future. So how can we implement new strategies to predict future trends in automation? When I look at some of the conversation we had, I don't know, when we started our conversation a couple of years ago, I think that the very big focus was on trying to quantify that impact and launch first ideas, first pilots. I think we now moved into a phase where you just mentioned, Michael, the Woolworth example. I think organizations are ready to scale these initiatives and they have tested and piloted some of it. And now they're investing more into learning infrastructure and how they upskill and reskill their organization. They invest into new ways of recruiting. I mean, the last year has shown us that skills can be deployed from anywhere to anywhere because of technology. So they're looking for new talents and where they can get the best talents. What was before maybe a conversation around outplacement or helping them find another job is how we can we really shape the workforce in our ecosystem to make sure that the employees still have a job. So for me, an example is during COVID in Germany, they popped up lots of sharing ideas of the workforce. So some of the workers that weren't needed in one company anymore, they were deployed in another to make sure that they had an employment. So coming back to the question, why is it so important for us to think further ahead and be ahead of the curve than to be reactive on this topic? There was a really solid, reliable, dependable strategy that companies used to talk about a lot, which is being a fast follower. And even the biggest companies in the world would quite often say, well, we're not going to be bleeding edge, we're going to be leading edge, we'll be fast followers. There's a really big problem with that in today's world, which is that on an exponential curve, even if you're a fast follower, it means that somebody else has started. And because they're moving exponentially, even if you're moving, they're moving faster. It's no longer a good idea to wait and see what your competitors do because you miss all of the experiments, all the hidden learnings, all of the, the trial and error benefit that they get from innovating internally. You wait until they produce something that you can see and then you try and follow, but they're pulling ahead. And so in an exponential era, which is what we're in, being a fast follower just guarantees that you're going to become a smaller dot in the rearview mirror of the companies that are leading. And we're seeing that around the world when we see the kind of spikes in industry investment quickly followed by you know, the whole startup ecosystems and then the way that national economies change. You can't afford to wait in that type of world. We did a study on the maturity of organization and then we can see exactly the effect you described. Before when we did the digital maturity research, there were different types of organizations, different clusters. In 2020, there were two. There were the ones that were moving ahead and that are progressing. And there were the other ones that are kind of having hard time to follow. So the gap between the ones that are experimenting with technology and moving ahead is getting bigger and bigger. We can see that in the research we did last year as well. So this sounds like a topic that you're both very passionate about, but Michael in particular, I know that you have your company Fathom. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Why did you found it? What was your motivation? What kind of insights does it give to the future of automation in the workforce? So I used to be a partner at the Boston Consulting Group, and I just started to see a pattern going back to about 2010, which is that mostly in these large enterprises, HR back then was a fulfillment center. It didn't have a seat at the kind of strategy table. It wasn't driving 
strategy. It was responding to strategy that was being driven really by marketing and technology. And so the problem that I started to see was that you know, these technologies, these, these products, these businesses that we were building, we were being engaged to build this disruptive product. And I could see that it was going to be disruptive inside the organizations. And um, led to me suggesting that we build a data platform to help companies and governments around the world to understand and to manage and navigate what has become known as the fourth industrial revolution. And set Fathom up in 2016, we spent 18 months building the first version of the platform, but really to help companies to understand the true and actual effect, not the media hyperbole, but the true effect of technology on jobs. And then number one, to help reskill people to jobs in the future. Now, what we've done with Cap Gemini is its own little story. We went all over Europe, London, Paris, Stockholm, Utrecht, met a bunch of companies with, with Cap Gemini, and through Claudia and her team and her leadership of this in Europe, Cap Gemini is probably one of the most advanced consulting firms in this space across Europe because they were the first to go to market and to use our software with a bunch of different countries in Europe. So I think what is interesting about Fathom is it solves two problems. One is there is still a lot of uncertainty about how many jobs are going to be impacted and, and to what degree. And it's very diverse. It was ranging to plus 100 million, minus 800 million. So the range was impressive. There's still studies published. I mean, in the last year alone, there's more studies coming out about how many jobs are going to be impacted. So it helps with the real data of the organization, which is obviously limited to what is okay from a data privacy point of view, but it actually stops the guessing. The second part, what it does, it allows the conversation around how you want to invest in technology and then how you want to invest in your people. It helps leaders to make appropriate decisions on how to really future-proof their workforce. So how did you go about compiling this information that's behind Fathom? And so the starting point was for us to develop an occupational ontology. So we now describe 5,608 different occupations about 100,000 different job titles. We have a time and task model of 20,000 skills, 26,000 tasks. We have every census for every major country, so the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and we've got data on 2 billion of the world's workforce. What then sits around that ontology are topical data sets that describe different things, impacts on work, where it gives us the ability to show when you introduce a technology, you automate some tasks, augment others and add others. There's a lot of jargon in what I've just said. So let me simplify it with a couple of examples. Voice AI, we'll know what that is, is nowhere near maturity. But we know that it's being used. So if you run a bank, you cannot deploy voice AI on the same day in France, Finland and the Philippines because there's different levels of connectivity, a whole bunch of different issues at work either speed up or slow down your ability to deploy this technology. So we describe all of that in data. We then have trained another AI to understand when you deploy that software into that bank, which are the processes and tasks that are affected and when. What that means is that our clients can then scenario model the impact of technology on their jobs and understand what to do with their people. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, when COVID started in February last year, we thought that a pandemic might happen. And in February and March, we built a COVID resilience module for all of our clients. So we swapped out the technology curves for a pandemic and epidemic curve for every country. And that work was featured in MIT Technology Review in April. 
So in April last year, two months into the pandemic, MIT did a nine-page article about the neural network that we built to show companies and governments what COVID transmission risk looked like through all of their jobs and their people. I think what is interesting in this for organizations is actually when you think about jobs and how they're structured and you decompose the jobs, it actually allows organizations to completely rethink the way they think about talent and the way they think about organization, because it allows you to move to a more skill-based organization than a structure or like a hierarchy or boxes of jobs, because that's not how you will think in the future. It's around what kind of skill people bring and what kind of role do you build or even compose for them in the future in order to be the best they can. Can you talk a little bit about what upskilling is and why it's such a vital strategy to get things right for companies these days? I mean, generally, upskilling means that you're helping employees to acquire additional skills and help them augment their capabilities and competencies. There's more ways of skilling, I think cross-skilling, reskilling, and so forth. But I guess upskilling has been the term because we can see we're lacking key skills in data area technology. So the necessity to make sure people understand technology, so have a basic understanding of AI technology is crucial. So this whole notion around, I think it was also actually UiPath who offered AI and AI and automation skills training to all their employees and made it kind of a program for everybody to attend. There's a program in Finland, there's a small startup that has the ambition that every Finnish citizen has a basic understanding of AI. So I think this whole idea of increasing the savviness of each and every one around technology, automation, AI is quite crucial. Has the impact of automation been the same across all job levels or has it been different depending on the job level and the skill required for the role? Yeah, I think automation is also a story that shows us the inequalities in the workforce and the impact of it. So the risk of automation is uneven across the workforce. So what we could see in the data and also in the different projects that we've done with Fathom is that, for example, automation risks are higher in, let's say, less educated workers are more likely to be in jobs that have routine tasks, so that have a higher risk of being automated. Additionally, in the pandemic, we could see that the risk for minority communities, so Black workers or Hispanic workers that were mainly in a service area or in more routine tasks have been more impacted. And lastly, what we can see in our projects that a lot of the female workforce is also impacted to a higher degree because they may be in some companies still where diversity hasn't been such a topic. They may have been impacted in a higher degree. The automation story is not just about learning and reskilling challenge, but it's also about solving that inequality challenge and how we deal as organizations and as institutions, as governments with these inequalities and make sure that everybody is taken along. Is there any specific sector where we really need more reskilling than others? Every sector. When a politician says, we're going to solve all this with a culture of lifelong learning, and everyone nods and goes, oh, that's a great idea. There is no country on earth that is yet set up to deliver lifelong learning. We think about this, right? So lifelong learning is 40 years, or hopefully more, of training for you for me, for everyone that you see, 
There's no funding mechanism, there's no content, there's no delivery, there's no general awareness, and yet we all know that it's important. So the, the main challenge, I think, for lifelong learning is not about sectors, it's about how government, industry, and academia innovate together to be able to provide meaningful learning and development for people on demand, in person, online, in whatever sort of format they're investing in all these kind of new content each year. We're not teaching history or geography or another language where the content stays the same year on year. We're teaching dynamic topics that change all the time. So we need to be investing in this. This is a whole new industry. I think we talk about client, like industry organizations or government, but actually this is a problem or a challenge that no single entity can solve alone because there's so many pieces that need to go together. Institutions, governments, industry organizations and the individual so each and every one of us has to participate to make this happen this lifelong learning culture so how do you create an effective system for upskilling and this lifelong learning culture to make sure that it's efficient and getting to the core of the issue how do you create a forward-thinking strategy rather than a reactive one so this is the work that fathom's doing with governments all over the world so there's been a number of governments publish the insights and the reports and so on that they get from buying and using our software so we are showing governments in every continent at the moment, except for Africa, what the future supply and demand of labor is, what that means for economic policy and industry policy, what that means for reskilling and upskilling policy, where they need to be investing, where they don't need to be investing, how they handle things like stranded workforces. Think of the coal miners in Western Pennsylvania. These guys are part of what's known as a stranded workforce. The coal mining industry in Western Pennsylvania will not be there in 20 years' time. And that's not as a result of policy, wrong or right. It's a result of climate change. It's a result of industry investment in renewables and, and so on. So there is a stranded workforce in Western Pennsylvania for all those coal miners, but also all of the people in the communities whose salaries hang off those jobs. What we're doing is helping governments deal with these sorts of stranded workforces and identify how they need to reskill those individual people with those community colleges. What is the investment in a particular community college that gets this individual coal miner from a job that's in decline into a job building all this new infrastructure that Biden's four trillion will be funding? Now that's a real example. That's something we're involved in. I'm from Western Pennsylvania, so <laughs> Yes, that is very true. And I, I know those stranded workers personally. I grew up in a coal mining area, so absolutely. I'm sitting here in Sydney, Australia, and Fathom has about 90 employees. And those people are in our platform. And it's the AIs that are doing the walking for us here. It's not us. We're not going there in person. It's we have the, the analytics and the software to be able to identify through US census who those people are, to be able to identify the jobs that they're in, to be able to identify whether those jobs are in growth or, or decline, to be able to identify what the next job is and to be able to identify what the gap is and then the skills needed. So back to your question, that's exactly how we're informing, reskilling and upskilling as far away from Sydney and as niche an issue as coal mining in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, especially because the people that I grew up often feel that they've been lost in the noise that exists. One of the reasons for my interest in this is that I grew up in the northwest of the UK. It's an industrial area. But my first job was designing software and processes and so on for clients. So I worked in a consulting firm, but the clients typically 
were call center companies or shared services companies. And so 20 something years ago, I was designing the software and business processes and so on for industries that can now be automated. So like you, I know people, or I certainly knew people doing work that will not be here in five or 10 years time. So this is quite a personal thing that I'm doing, but there are many, many examples that all of us have where we know individual people in jobs that you now refer to as stranded workforces. So this is a good example of how we're helping governments to reskill those people. What do you think some of the new technology disruptors will be in the future of the workforce? One interesting one that's also short term is battery technology. That sounds pretty dull, but when it comes to decarbonisation, getting to net neutral or, or net zero emissions, the, the shift away from oil and gas, the demand for electric vehicles, the growth in renewables, what we're seeing is a massive shift in the electrical industry worldwide. And one of the key parts of that is battery tech, being able to capture and store vastly greater amounts and, and basically make machines more efficient and to get them off oil and gas. That's a, a near-term, like two, three, four-year horizon impact that will fundamentally reshape how we move, how we get around. It'll free up an awful lot of petrol station space in every suburb in the country. It'll require us to do an awful lot more with renewables. It'll require us to rethink the electric grid and, and electrical infrastructure. That's a massive driver of new jobs, as well as a, a disruptive effect on the oil and gas industry. And we're expecting a tipping point in electrical vehicle usage in about 2023, 2024, because there'll be so many electric vehicles in China, Japan, and South Korea, that it won't become economical to run the current petrol and oil and gas industry into those countries. And that'll have a disruptive effect on the pricing of all of those um, products worldwide. I'm excited or curious to see how biotechnology is going to evolve. Currently, we're limited in our thinking and the productivity or the work by the speed we enter information into the computer and get it, like can compress it on the way back. If there's different connections between the computer or the AI and us, I think what it could do to productivity and how we live and how things are progressing, that would be interesting to see. We started this conversation kind of talking about how the media has given us all this fear about how automation is taking away jobs from the workforce potentially. But how do you think technology can play a role in protecting workers in the future? I mean, it did already during COVID, right? So some of the technology helping us to identify risks, I think that will continue. Identifying where it's safe to go, identifying risks, and also helping to reduce accidents. If I think about some of the technology that is currently used in manufacturing companies or in utilities companies to, to make sure the, the safety of the worker is the first priority. So it helps us to be more safe, actually. This is a good news story. This is not the end of work. The future of work is not about job losses. The future of work is about learning and development. So this is an opportunity for all of us. This is not something to be feared. I would ignore most of the media that you've read on this. I would not think that automation equals job loss. And I would think about the way that people can pathway into new jobs in the future through skills development. And that's something that's an opportunity for everybody. This is a good news story. It's clear that AI has a critical role in creating effective automation systems. But at the same time, the true effectiveness is driven from the human element of the workforce. To make the best use of the tools available to us, we'll need to ensure that we train our staff to learn the best time and place to use technology. A big thank you to Michael and Claudia. You can find out more about them and their work in the show notes. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. This podcast was brought to you by Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon.